And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. I wonder this morning if you've ever been stood up. Someone said that they would come and they never showed. 
Someone said that the check was in the mail and the mail never arrived. Someone said that they would call and they didn't. Someone said that they would meet you and they broke the appointment. So there you sat at Starbucks or at Skyline Chili waiting for them to show and they never came. And you were disappointed. Maybe you were hurt depending on what the relationship was. You felt frustrated. You felt cheated. Maybe you just felt confused. You find yourself in that situation saying to yourself, was he just lying to me? Maybe something came up. Maybe he just forgot. Maybe he'll call. Should I call him? What should I do? And you sit and all sorts of things run through your mind. Sometimes not very good things run through our minds when that happens to us. It happened to Toby and I not too long ago. We had invited someone over for dinner and Toby had prepared a special meal and the house had been tidied up and the table was set. And there we sat in our living room waiting for this person to arrive and they never came. Some of you right now are filing through your memory, trying to remember if it was you. But it wasn't any of you, um, so you don't have to panic. But though it wasn't someone in the church, it was disappointing nonetheless. Because we'd made great preparations and then we were stood up. So we ate our dinner and we sat there and wondered what went wrong. And we never found out. You've all had that happen to you at one time or another. Someone has stood you up. And when that happens, it affects the way that you live from that point forward. It affects the way that you relate to that person and often the way you relate to other people. So some of us who have had that experience become jaded and bitter. Say, forget that person. I don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. They can't keep their appointments. Others of us respond in a different way. And we become afraid of putting our hearts out on the table or afraid of trusting other people because we're afraid they're going to let us down. And others of us just begin to take the attitude that if you want something done, you have to do it yourself. And so we never rely on anyone anymore. Worst of all, what happens is that we don't just project those feelings on other people. Sometimes we project them on God. Some people have been let down enough that they project these same attitudes towards their maker. And so they begin not to really expect very much from God. Even when they pray, they don't expect very much from God. They're afraid to make too radical of a commitment to God for fear that it won't work out in the end and they'll be left holding the bag. Or worse yet, they begin to just take matters into their own hands. They don't pray to God anymore. They don't ask God's blessing on what they do. They just say, if I want something done, I've got to make it happen. And they lose their faith in God. And if you're at any of those places this morning, or even if you're not... You need to hear again Genesis 21, 1 and 2. Let me just read it to you, putting the emphasis where I think is most important. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Isn't that good to hear this morning? God always does what he says he will do. Abraham and Sarah waited near upon 25 years for God to answer. And God did what he said he would do. God's not like us. God is not like those who have let us down. Forgetting his commitments or overlooking his commitments or simply ignoring his commitments because it was inconvenient. 
That's not God. Nor is God like us in that sometimes He's willing to fulfill His commitments and unable. God is never unable to do what He has said He will do. God never runs out of time like we do. God never gets sick and has to break an agreement. God never has an unexpected scheduling snafu that throws His plans off. And God never lacks the strength to do what He promises He will do. Even when it's something as difficult as giving a child to a 90-year-old woman or raising His son from the dead. God always does and has the power to do what He says He will do. That's why we read in a previous week the angel rebuking Sarah with this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Answer, no. God will do what he said he will do. And I hope that will just be an initial encouragement to you this morning. Not to give up praying for whatever it is that you're praying for. Not to give up waiting for the Lord to come through. And not to take matters into your own hands when it doesn't seem like God is doing what he said he would do. When the time is right... God will do exactly as he has said. If you tend to forget that, then remind yourself of Abraham and Sarah. And remind yourself of all the times in your own life when God has done exceedingly, abundantly more than you ever asked or imagined. And say to yourself, God will do what he says. I can trust him and I will trust him. And let me say this also, while you continue to trust God, Continue to obey God. When you read on into verses 3 and 4, you find that God wasn't the only one doing what God said. Abraham was too. Look at verse 3. Abraham named the child Isaac just as God had instructed him back in chapter 17, verse 19. He didn't come up with this name on his own. God said, you'll call the child Isaac. And in verse 3, Abraham did as the Lord had said. And then in verse 4, we read that Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And that command was in chapter 17, verse 10. So we're reminded this morning that the real question in our lives is not whether God will do what he said, but whether we will. The real question is not whether God will do what he said, but whether we will do what he says. We need to think that out this morning. Some of us may have been listening so far and thinking to ourselves, Amen! I'm so glad that I'm trusting in the Lord and waiting on the Lord. And I would just ask you, are you really? Are you really trusting the Lord? Are you proving that you're trusting the Lord by, like Abraham, doing as He commands? When we start to think of trust in those terms, things get a little less certain. So we need to think through. Does our checkbook this morning, show that we really believe that God's investment plan, namely, don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven, really works? Does your checkbook prove that you really trust God in that? Does your treatment of other people, whether it's in your home or at your work, show that you really believe that vengeance is mine, says the Lord? Or are you constantly trying to get back for yourself? Does your daytime or your calendar or your a little handheld device, your daily schedule, does it show that you believe that the Lord gives to His beloved even in His sleep? Are you constantly running around trying to make everything work for yourself? Running the same rat race as everyone else. We need to think our individual actions, all of them, and our entire lifestyles through. 
to see if we're really trusting what the Lord says. And we need, when we find ourselves falling short, not to start way over here with the sinful behavior pattern, but we need to move further back towards the heart and ask ourselves, why is it that I find myself doing what I'm doing? What promises of the Lord, what truths about the Lord am I failing to believe? Because it's my belief that changes my behavior. Just like it was for Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord and therefore he obeyed the Lord. And when we find out those promises that we're not believing, those truths about God that we are not holding on to, we need to ask God for faith to believe. We need to plead with him to give us a heart of faith, to trust that he will do as he has promised. And when we have that kind of faith that God will do as he has promised, then our behavior will change. That's what we see with Abraham. You know what's one sure sign that we're growing in spiritual health this way? That we're growing to trust the Lord and that our hearts are changing? One sure sign is laughter. The laughter of Sarah in verse 6. Not the laughter of contrived humor and silliness that's so popular in many churches today, but the laughter of Sarah who said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham, verse 7, that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in my old age? That's healthy laughter. It's not silliness. It's laughter that says, I can't believe how good you've been to me, God. This is amazing. That's healthy laughter. And that's the laughter of Sarah. And her laughter, along with this party that Abraham throws for Isaac in verse 8, are reminders to us this morning that if we're really growing, if we're really becoming spiritually healthy, that means joy. It doesn't mean that we will always have good circumstances that make us happy, but it means that those who really know God and those who really trust God can rejoice. Because they're constantly amazed at how God seems to do or does what seems to us impossible. They're amazed that God would give a child to a man 100 years old and a woman 90 years old. They're amazed at how God would bring a dying little Ethiopian girl to our city so that she could have surgery and live and so that we could have an Ethiopian restaurant right around the corner from our church so that we could feed her dad all week who's afraid to ask anybody for food and we're the only ones who know that he needs to eat. God is amazing. God sends 50 neighborhood kids, most of whom have never heard the gospel before, to our church so that we can tell them about Jesus. That is amazing. God sends his only begotten son to die for sinners like us. That's the most amazing of all, isn't it? Those who know the Lord never, ever, ever run out of reasons to rejoice and to laugh at God's goodness. And if we know God, we will be able also, like Sarah expected her neighbors to do in verse 6, to rejoice with those who rejoice. She said, everyone who hears this will laugh with me. So there's a reminder, too, that even if we're in the darkest of times right now in our individual lives, we look around at our brothers and sisters and see reasons to rejoice in them. So let me ask you, has God made laughter for you? Do you know the joy of the Lord? Do you have reason after reason after reason to revel in the fact that you know the God of the impossible? If the answer this morning is no, frankly, I don't have that kind of joy. Let me just give you one more good reason that you might 
rejoice in the Lord. Grace. The greatest thing that God does, the most impossible thing that God does is grant forgiveness and hope and new life to sinners who don't deserve it. And he does so by sending his son. God treats us far, far better than we deserve. And that is great reason to rejoice. The fact that God treats us better than we deserve becomes strikingly obvious in the lives of Sarah and Abraham. Most of you, if you've been here week after week with us, you know their background already. You know what kind of people they are. But they are. But even if you didn't know their background, you could find out a lot about them by reading verses 9 through 12. And those verses alone would suffice to show you that God wasn't good to Sarah and Abraham because they were good, but because God is good. God wasn't good to Sarah and Abraham because they were good, but because God is gracious. In fact, these verses show us that they're miserable sinners. So just follow along through with me this story. Verse 9, there's a major problem, isn't there? Sarah and Abraham have this new son, Isaac, and Abraham's older son, Sarah's stepchild, Ishmael, is laughing. But he's not laughing like Sarah was laughing. He's not laughing at God's goodness. He's laughing at his little brother. Mocking is what the verse says there in verse 9. We don't condone Ishmael's actions, but if any of you have had children, if any of you grew up with brothers and sisters, you know that this isn't necessarily abnormal. It may be very sinful, it is very sinful in God's sight, but it's not abnormal to have sibling rivalry or jealousy between two brothers or brothers and sisters in a home. What's abnormal is the way that Sarah responded to it. Sarah was the one who should have known better. Sarah was the adult. Sorry. Sarah was the one who was supposed to be God's child. And the way she responds is what's strange and what's abnormal. In verse 10, she says to her husband, kick him out and kick his mom out too. I'm tired of listening to him. I'm not going to have him here mocking my little boy. Probably the closest translation in the Hebrew is get rid of him. That's what she said. That's amazing. Sarah, who has just gotten done rejoicing at how good God has been. Sarah, who has been shown so much grace herself, showing utter contempt for another human being. Her husband's own eldest son, no less. It's not exactly what we would expect from the matriarch of God's chosen race, is it? We find it here in black and white. Sarah was a sinner, a vile sinner. For her own happiness, she'll send someone else out in the desert to survive on just a little bit of water and hardly any food. It's a reminder. God was good to Sarah, not because Sarah was good, but because God is good. God was good to Sarah, not because Sarah was good, but because God is gracious. And we can say the same thing about Abraham. In verse 11, Abraham finds himself in quite a jam. He doesn't know what to do. And before we quickly say, well, it's all his fault, which it is. But before we say that, let's just remind ourselves that if we had to walk a mile in Abraham's shoes, we would feel genuinely sorry for him. It's a tough decision to choose between pleasing your wife and siding with your oldest son, whom you're going to lose if you please your wife. It's a terrible spot to be in. So we feel sorry for Abraham. 
But we do need to recognize that this whole mess that Abraham is in happened because he committed adultery. So it is Abraham's fault. It was Abraham's sin with Ishmael's mother that created the whole problem. He had messed up royally and now he was facing the tragic fallout. And some of us are facing tragic fallout from silly, foolish, sinful decisions that we've made in the past. And that's the way that it often works. But we see here, again, Abraham's not a model citizen either. Sarah is not a model citizen Abraham is not a model citizen. Yet, God blessed Abraham, the adulterer, with a miracle child. God chose Abraham, the adulterer, to be the father of many nations. Not because Abraham was good, but because God is good. God stands ready to be good to us today, too. We are like Abraham and Sarah, aren't we? Maybe not committing the same sins, but continuing in sin just like they were. And God stands ready to be gracious to us. Do we deserve his favor? No. Have we been good enough to merit God's friendship and his forgiveness or his heaven? Absolutely not. Yet, God gives those things to us freely nonetheless. Not because we are good, but because God is good. For all those who put their trust in Jesus, they find friendship with God. They find salvation, forgiveness of sins. They find that Jesus is saying, I'm building a home for you in heaven. All of it is undeserved. All of it is given to us freely in Jesus. Speaking of him, he's the main reason why God is so good to sinners like us. Jesus is the main reason why God was good to Abraham and Sarah. God was good to them to get to Jesus. God's purpose from before the foundation of the world was to show his glory and his grace to the nations by sending his son. And God's plan to do that was going to be selecting a particular family, Abraham and Sarah, showing them peculiar favor, giving them eventually his word, teaching them to walk in his ways, giving them a parcel of land where they could live, protecting them from harm, so that in the fullness of time, through that people and in that place, God would have somewhere and someone to send his Messiah to. That's what God is doing here. That's the main point of this story, that God is preparing the nation of Israel through Abraham and Sarah, through which to send his son. So God was gracious to them, For Jesus' sake, mainly, to get to Jesus. The same way that in verses 12 and 13, God selected Isaac as the child of the promise and not Ishmael. Not for Isaac's sake mainly, but for Jesus' sake. Isaac was born so that the family line continues so that that Jesus could be born. And we need to recognize the same thing about ourselves. That God is good to us, first of all, for Jesus' sake. If you are a Christian this morning, God saved you mainly so that he would have another vessel through which to demonstrate the power of Jesus to change a human life. God saves sinners so that the world might see his might and his mercy as Jesus changes them. Yes, God saves sinners for our own sake, too. We benefit greatly from salvation. But the main purpose God saves sinners is to glorify His Son. And that's the main point of this story. 
God selected and saved Abraham and Sarah so that he could have a place and a family through which to send his son. Do we learn moral lessons from Abraham? Absolutely. Do we learn about faith from Abraham? Certainly. The New Testament makes much of Abraham's faith. But God caused this story to happen in the first place so that through Abraham, God might prepare the way for Jesus, who said before Abraham was born, I am. This story is about Jesus. The whole Old Testament is a preparation for and a pointing toward Jesus. So must our lives be. Preparing those around us for Jesus and pointing those around us to Jesus. It's so that we might fulfill this great purpose of pointing the world to Jesus, that God treats us better than we deserve, that God saves us for his glory. So think that through. Think it through practically. If you're a Christian this morning, think to yourself, I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but am I living to declare His praise? First Peter 2 says that God has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light so that we may proclaim His excellencies. Are you proclaiming His excellencies with the way that you live and the way that you speak? Do your neighbors or your co-workers see Christ and hear of Christ through you on a regular basis? Are your children closer to the kingdom of God for having grown up in your home? Or would they agree with the suicide note that I read about this week in which the person who killed himself said this, My parents brought me up to believe in God and to believe that he doesn't matter. My parents brought me up to believe that there's a God. With their lips they said there's a God. They talked about God. But they also, through their actions, brought me up to believe that God didn't make a hill of beans worth of difference in the way that they lived their normal lives. That's a tragedy. Some of us may be living in that kind of tragedy. It's a tragedy for us and it's a tragedy for those around us. If we fail to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ through our lips and with our lives, if we fail to live out the purpose for which we've been redeemed, if we fail to point to and glorify the Lord Jesus, then our lives will have been a waste. Now, in saying that God treats us better than we deserve, in saying that God treats His own children better than they deserve, as we've been saying with Abraham and Sarah and ourselves, we don't want to overlook the fact that God treats all human beings better than they deserve. The privileges of being forgiven and adopted into God's family are reserved only for those who by faith have become followers of Jesus. But God's general blessings belong to all of mankind. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5 that God causes rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God does good to every human being. That's the main lesson that we get from verses 14 through 21. Ishmael and Hagar were treated well by God. But were they God's children? No. The covenant was with Isaac. Verse 12. Were Hagar and Ishmael saved? No, they weren't. The covenant was with Isaac. Yet, God still treated them with compassion and with kindness that they did not deserve. And let's remind ourselves why they didn't deserve it. In verse 9, Ishmael is a contemptuous lecher of a son. 
mocking his younger brother at this party. And in verses 14 through 16, after they've been sent away, we find Hagar despairing of faith and forgetting the promises that God had made about her son. God had already said, I'm going to make Ishmael into a great nation. Twelve princes will come from him. But here she finds herself despairing, forgetting what God said. So neither one of them comes out in the plus here. Yet, God was good to them. God did not forget Ishmael. Verse 17, God heard the lad crying. Verse 19, God gave the lad water. Verse 20, God was with the lad and he grew. God treated Hagar and Ishmael better than they deserved. So let's not forget this morning that God has compassion on all that he has made. That he does good to the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what we call common grace. There are certain graces of God that are common to all of us. The entire sinful human race is treated better than we deserve. But at the same time, let's not confuse common grace with saving grace. Just because God rescues a person from a car crash or blesses their business or heals their cancer or answers their prayers doesn't mean that they're a Christian. Let me hear that. Let me let you hear that again. Just because God does some earthly good to someone and seems to be watching out for them doesn't mean that they are a Christian. God shows the kindnesses to the Ishmaels the same way that he does to the Isaacs. He shows kindnesses to those who are lost the same as he does in many cases to those who are saved. So God's goodness to us in the day to day routine of life is no certain evidence that we belong to him. So many people have this confused. They think that because God has been good to them on earth, that they're of necessity going to go to heaven. That's not how it works. I had someone tell me, I was asking someone about their relationship with the Lord. Tell me why you think you have a relationship with the Lord. Well, one time I was almost in a car crash and God rescued me from getting in the car crash. So I figure he's on my side. It's not how it works. God shows compassion on all he has made, but that doesn't mean that all that he has made are going to heaven. People like that think that God is on their side, but they've never repented of their sins. They've never despaired of their own ability to do right in God's sight. And they've never turned and put their faith in what Christ alone has done for them. So they are like Ishmael, recipients of common grace, but they've never ever laid hold of saving grace by repenting of their sins and putting their trust in Jesus. Some of you may be them this morning, just assuming that everything is okay between you and God because you've had it pretty good and God has watched out for you. And if you're here this morning just assuming for one reason or another that everything's going to be okay, you need to learn the lesson of Ishmael. God treated Ishmael well on the earth. God made Ishmael into a great nation, but Ishmael still died in his sins. And so will you and I if we do not repent and come to Jesus who alone can wash away those sins, wash away the lifetime habit that we all have of ignoring and refusing and rebelling against what we know is true. So if you're in that spot today, I would just urge you right now to entrust yourself to Jesus. This very moment. To cease being content with God's common grace and to strive to lay hold of his saving grace by laying hold of Jesus who alone can give it. And if you're still one of those folks that's weighing your options, or even if you're not, 
Let me just give you one more inducement to come to Jesus, to put your confidence only in him from verses 22 and following, and then we're through. In this last paragraph of chapter 21, we are reminded, as we were at the beginning of the chapter, that God always does what he says he will do. In chapter 12, verse 2, God had promised Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make for you a great name. And then look what happens in chapter 21, verse 22. Now, it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, Abimelech was a powerful local king. Powerful enough that a few chapters back, Abraham was afraid that this man might take his life. And now we find Abimelech coming and pleading for help and for mercy from Abraham, saying, God is with you in everything that you do. God has made Abraham's name great by the time we get to verse 22. God has done as he had promised. Similarly, in chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, God promised Abraham this parcel of ground that we now call Israel. It said, look everywhere that you can see, Abraham, every direction. I'm going to give you this land. And through this treaty that Abraham and Abimelech enacted in verses 23 and following, we see God beginning to make that promise take root as well. Abraham now becomes the undisputed owner of this well at Beersheba and all the territory that surrounds it. He's got his first piece of ground in this promised land. Not all of it, but the first fruits, the the beginning of the promise. In verse 33 and 34, we find that he begins to mark it as his own by doing a little landscaping. He planted a tamarisk tree. He builds an altar for himself, apparently, because he he there calls on the name of the Lord. And he turns Beersheba into his permanent residence. God is beginning to give him the land that he promised in chapter 13. God is doing exactly as he had promised. And it's a reminder again to us that God will do what he has promised for us too. No one who ever turned from their sinful ways and entrusted themselves to the mercy of Jesus was left standing at the altar. No one who ever made an appointment with God in heaven was ever stood up. When you put your trust in Christ, God promises forgiveness and life change now. He promises to be with you from now into the future. And He promises to bring you finally into heaven to be with Himself forever. And though you and I may continuously break engagements with God, He will never break one with us. Philippians 1.6 is one of my favorite verses. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will do what He said He would do. He who began a good work in you will both now and eternity do exactly as He has promised. Father, thank You for being a God of Your Word. Thank You that though we sin and sin and sin like Abraham and Sarah, that if we are in Christ, You never turn your, backs on a, your back on us. Lord, thank You for grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Thank You for being true to Your promises. Thank you for giving us joy. And I pray that we will look around at the lives you have given us and the lives of those around us 
and rejoice in your goodness. We would rejoice in your common grace to all and that we would especially rejoice in your saving grace that brings us to be your children. God, I pray for someone who may be here today who is not your child and they know they're not your child. You would give them a heart that would believe, a heart that would turn from their sins and commit themselves to your son and all that he is and all that he has done so that they might be forgiven and changed. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said,